Hi, my name is Chris, a postdoc and associated member of ML4Q, and you're listening to ML4Q&A, a show where members from the Meta and Light for Quantum Computing cluster answer questions about their work in the cluster, their research and the future of quantum. In today's episode, I'm talking to David DiVincenzo, director of the Institute for Theoretical Nanoelectronics at Forschungszentrum Jülich and co-founder of the Institute for Quantum Information, which is a joint institute of RWTH Aachen and the Forschungszentrum. We start by listening to David's take on different aspects of the fast developments in the field of quantum computing. Then we take a deep dive into the mid-80s and early 90s to discuss how David started to work on quantum computing before Shaw's algorithm and quantum error correction were discovered. Naturally then, him and his collaborators at IBM were ready to contribute to the developing field. We touch upon the DiVincenzo criteria, the lost DiVincenzo quantum dot proposal, and get to know some of the mentors David was lucky to have had. It is my privilege today to have a podcast conversation with David DiVincenzo. David is, of course, uh, I'm, I'm not impartial right now because he was one of, the, one of my teachers early on in my career. Yeah. Good morning, Christian, by the way. Yes. So I'm, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't be here Uh, recording this podcast without you, but uh, I, I probably also wouldn't wouldn't be here because I think your classes uh, in Aachen at the time played a really important role in, in in shaping my career. So thank you, thank you for that. You're welcome. In, in previously on on the podcast, we we had these either or questions that we asked people, but I'd like to this time change it up a little bit and um, in the beginning ask you some some quick questions that you should maybe answer with. Uh, a sentence or, or a few words All and right. then afterwards we'll, we'll go into more detail so let's start out do you see building a quantum computer as predominantly a science or an engineering effort neither ah interesting it, it is both and you you have you have done i mean you, your background is in electrical engineering at first sort of yes does that help you in your yes. research Yes, I would say quite concretely. And um, how important is it in building a quantum computer to understand classical computers? Moderately important. I think not an overwhelmingly important. All right. Um, second question. Name a quantum computing platform that you have never worked on. I've never worked on ion traps. All right. Yeah. That's. And uh, what kind of papers do you enjoy working on more? Rather conceptual, big picture papers or technical papers that go further into details? No, rather conceptual papers, uh, but they should have some concrete technical content as well. Yeah, I guess you, you have to be able to write the concrete technical papers before they let you write the big conceptual ones. Perhaps, yeah. But then it depends. Uh, conceptual means many different things. I mean, I have papers that I consider highly conceptual, but they have several theorems in them. So, okay, what is that? That's also pretty technical. Yeah. How, how much you you don't really have a mathematical background, but a lot of True. your work is like at least in the early, like in some part in your career, you did very mathematical work. Yeah, but I would say that uh, this is part of the uh, thing of having an engineering education that uh, in some corners of engineering, the mathematics is of a very high standard and actually goes beyond what you learn in physics. So I uh, have a problem currently where I need to use a Hilbert transform. And I poll people, and people with a physics background say, I never heard of a Hilbert transform. And people with an electrical engineering background say, yeah, of course, Hilbert transform, very important. Yeah. I, I, have, I have the same, just 
to, to do a small digression, uh, in, in superconducting qubits, we often have to think about um, making the right pulses for our qubits, right? And then you always have this, this problem of, of, you know, that things happen to your pulses as they, on the way to the qubits, like the thing that you, the waveform that you design on your waveform generator is not the one that arrives. Dispersion, Dispersion loss, etc. And this is something that an electrical engineer would be way better at than, than me. I had to look into this mm -hmm. linear transformations and so on. Mm -hmm. There's a whole, you know, framework in electrical engineering. That mm -hmm. I'm currently inquiring about whether it would be better for the uh, for attenuators that are used in that work, whether uh, really powder attenuators are the right idea or whether resistive attenuators are better. Yeah, and uh, that uh, really combines my. Uh, that sounds like a totally engineering question. However, I don't think of it that way. I think of it. It's uh, it's a good electromagnetics problem as well. Yeah, I mean, there's also even cavity attenuators, right? Where you where mm -hmm. you um, sort of don't 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 on purpose make them so lossy, but rather make them lossy by designing some cavity-like modes, right? Yeah, but they would be often kind of narrow-band attenuators and better to have broadband attenuators no, uh, indeed. in many respects. So, so indeed, this, is, this question relates to getting things cold, right? And it's, it's mm -hmm. a question that really brings together uh, uh, several parts of science, like uh, electrical engineering, but also this question of, of, of conduction of heat at, at low temperatures and right. so on. Also mechanical engineering. Oh, you know, exactly. You have, you have pumps and, you know, diffusing uh, gases and things like that. Yeah, and it's it's quite difficult to measure the thing that's going on in the fridge uh, uh, precisely. So, no, indeed, those... those I, I, I also really love about our work that it brings together so many aspects. Um, so, Nick, maybe maybe let's let's jump to the to the next question. Which quantum computer platform do you find most exciting right now? Uh, that uh, kind of depends on the day of the week. <laughs> right. uh, I'm, I'm very fond of germanium currently, uh, but I also love superconducting qubits. So germanium would be spin qubits in germanium? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and pure germanium or silicon germanium? Uh, well, I think everyone cares about heterostructures. And uh, then, indeed, uh, there are people who are very excited about holes. And I'm, I'm getting there, but I, th I still like electrons. Yeah, no... So it's it's really interesting. I, I uh, yeah. I, I also I'm not sure. Like the holes have, there, there's so many interesting aspects about it, right? In some sense, holes and electrons are quite similar. Mm. No, I, I don't agree. I don't agree. No, uh, no. I mean, I would have said that they mostly differ by like the amount of spin-orbit coupling that you get, or like details. But uh, well, that's true. But it's a very big detail in that case. That is. Yeah. Uh, thousands of percent difference in the uh, g-factor effects Correct, in yeah. holes and electrons. So so the way that you would control one or the other would be quite different. Yeah, indeed. right. I, I think the holes may end up being, quote, too controllable. Uh, that is, you have too, too uh, big a lever arm and therefore noise will noise is, continues to be a problem. Uh, that's, of course, one of our ongoing themes. No. Uh, please continue, uh, Christian. Um, and may, maybe now, now to a bigger question. I, I think it's fair to say that you have work more on solid-state platforms than on um, other quantum computing platforms. Uh, almost entirely, sure. Exactly. So do you, do you believe that the solid-state platforms will prevail over the trapped ions, Rydberg atoms, or photonic quantum computers? Or uh, Well, I can answer that question, but you have to understand it's only a, it would only be an opinion, and sure. uh, I consider the future quite cloudy in this respect. So, you know, I can just say, as a partisan, I love solid state. And, uh, but if I went so far as to say, and therefore I think solid state will be the one, 
uh, I, I can be in, uh, you know, that's a that's a, a a point of psychology in a sense for me to uh, go to that point. I don't know if it's delusional, but it's uh, it's stretching what I think you should really say scientifically. Sure, but what what I mean is, I mean, of course, our conventional computers are solid state computers. Mm -hmm. And um, is there an easy uh, uh, way to think that therefore the quantum computers will integrate more easily with um, classical computers if they are also solid state? Or do you think that it's in the end doesn't matter? That I don't think is an important issue. Okay. We had very delightful computers uh, back in the day when it was actually, uh, 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 you know, the physics of electrons traveling in vacuum. Indeed. And, you know, it was a really different area of physics that governed computers until the 1960s and uh, well okay maybe you'd say well we couldn't have possibly gone further without se semiconductors but well I don't know I mean at the moment you know for the best timekeeping we don't use solid state devices uh, or not that's not so uh, uh, primary in in uh, clocks you know ion traps are primary in quantum clocks and you might ask are the attributes of quantum of uh, of of uh, clocks more important for computers, for quantum computers, than the attributes of digital electronics. I'm not so sure. Maybe a follow-up. Um, in some sense, in scaling up, uh, even ion traps, for example, or photonic quantum computers, in some sense, move into the solid-state realm, right? Like the, the bigger photonic quantum computers are essentially waveguides that are etched into some some materials, mm -hmm. or the ion traps are, are highly, essentially using nanofabrication as well and, and run in. Will those devices run into the same problems as, as the solid state platforms like charge noise? And oh, the, they already have, yeah. of course, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think something everyone would agree with is that uh, whatever quantum computer we eventually have, it will involve a lot of matter. Indeed, uh, you know, substrates or uh, electrodes or, you know, things. And once you have a macroscopic amount of matter, you're doing solid state problems. Correct. Yeah. I mean, the, the quantum computer that to my mind is the farthest away from from a solid state quantum computer is the Rydberg atoms. Right. Because they are sort of. OK. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, it's true. Uh, of course, then I trace back, OK, where's the macroscopic matter there? Well, there are solid state lasers. <laughs> indeed. And, uh, and you do indeed have to worry about the noise properties of those lasers in that uh, setting. Yeah. No, it's, it's and, and in, indeed the cooling, uh, also the, the problems that you run into in the end are similar, that you have to cool these things down, that you have to, um, I mean, in the, in the ion traps and in the, the big technological difference in ion traps and, and Rydberg atoms maybe is the um, ultra-high vacuum that you work with rather than the dilution refrigerators, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's maybe... Yeah, so in, in some sense, people always say that the um, dilution refrigerators are a problem because they're not scalable or they... they uh, and so on. But the ultra-high vacuum setups are also a pain in to, to work with. Yeah, but quite doable. Sure. Uh, I mean, I think both are quite doable. Yes. Uh, uh, well, we might run out of helium-3. But that's why I, I do find in the interesting line of research in spin qubits is the idea that the that they won't need quite such low temperature. I think that, that could be really interesting if, uh, if the spin qubit works at 2 Kelvin. Yes. Then uh, that uh, changes the cooling technology uh, totally. Well, Indeed. Uh, pretty profoundly anyway. No, it, it will. It, it changes the engineering a lot. And, right. Uh, I mean, in some sense, we might argue that we already have very good spin qubits at 
I think one or two Kelvin with the NV centers. Okay. The question is how to how to uh, uh, scale them, right? Yeah, uh, that's uh, been a very hard question for the uh, NV centers. Yes. All right. Um, maybe to to shift gears a bit, um, an important question that I I think I've asked several people here already. Will there be a commercially viable application for NISC devices or at least quantum computers that are not relying on full-scale quantum error correction? You're asking the wrong person. All right. Uh, I would, again, it's an act of psychology for me to, uh, to answer that question in any reliable way. So you want me to say yes, I'll say yes, and then we'll discuss why it's yes, and then you can ask me why no, and then I can also tell why no. But I don't really know is the uh, is the answer. Do you think for the economics of 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 the the developing technology, this will be necessary? Hmm. Good question. Uh, uh, I think it would be very helpful. Uh, necessary? I don't know. Um, very helpful for sure. Yes. Yeah. Because I mean. Indeed, the, the question is more, will there be something that you can sell to people and that is actually useful on a 10-year timescale or, or maybe further down the road? Yeah. Of course, that's tied up in the question, how important and useful is the current uh, ecosystem of uh, new companies in quantum computing? Um, we see lots of big benefits for from the existing and thriving but it's not clear that they're the essential scientific benefits. I mean, they have the benefit that, yes, people continue to have careers and they can keep thinking about quantum computers. Uh, I don't know if they're the best tool for cracking the really hard scientific questions that are needed for further advancing. Yeah, this is something that I've also thought about quite a bit. It's very interesting that, like, economically, we have this, this ecosystem where you have uh, big government funding, which sort of runs these uh, uh, universities and, and research centers. And to some extent, also the companies like uh, IBM and uh, so on have also relied on government contracts, right? Mm -hmm. in, doing, in doing quantum <coughs> computing research. And um, then eventually uh, we are now in a phase where, where this ecosystem is developing and will, will take these, well, some people will make profits uh, uh, of these things. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a very interesting thing that we, as a society, um, uh, finance this, uh, mm -hmm. these developments and that later on they will be uh, privatized in their profits. I've been looking a little bit at uh, uh, the history of digital computing in that respect of, well, how important were companies, small companies, big companies, government, military. And uh, uh, it's not, not so different from today, but it is also definitely somewhat different. Uh, but uh, one can tell the story that uh, for certainly about 15 years, say starting in 1945. 1945, the sort of basic von Neumann concepts of what a computer should be were, were there. And we had some hardware, not very great hardware at that moment. And for the next 15 years, there were not very extensive applications. Um, I mean, the computer developed over that time, uh, very much driven by government uh, intervention, by prompting, funding. Um, uh, there were some applications, you know, they were kind of the NISC applications of, uh, with the Q rather, the C rather than a Q, yeah. uh, which were things like, uh, you know, uh, the ballistics of artillery shells and things like that. And uh, many, many runs were done and also the, the explosions of hydrogen bombs. So there were lots of secret codes run. Um, but 
uh, it was only very gradually that corporate that, that corporations could really stand on their feet and use and be successful in in computers as a business, digital computers, and the first applications were big. Um, uh, uh, you know, business control applications. Uh, you know, think IBM, I, International Business Machines, and that was, in fact, by 1960, that was clearly a stand. You know, something could stand on its own as a really economically viable thing. But it took those 15 years of gestation, uh, when there were not big profits to be made, uh, and you know, there were very narrow avenues for continuing to improve things. Nevertheless. The hardware from 1945 to 1960 underwent huge improvement, although much huger even further to come. 1960 was the era of the discrete transistor, um, so it had not, you know, the integrated circuit had not yet emerged. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, the most famous quote from this era, I guess, is, or maybe the quote is even later, right? This quote from, from some IBM uh uh, the chief of IBM. The chief of IBM that there's a world market for five computers. Uh, I don't remember the number, but that's exactly, except for the integer, the small integer, that's exactly what he said. Yeah. In yeah, the popular mechanics magazine, I believe. Yeah. I mean, with, with quantum computing, it might be more true because the applications are probably m like less likely to be as widely um, used and, as for the classical computer, right? So, I mean, mm -hmm. probably five is a too low a number, but... Yeah, the digital computer got there first, and it, uh, you know, proved that there are gigantic applications for computing, uh, and uh, quantum computing will come in and enlarge that space further, I, I think we can see. How fair do you think is this argument that is, I think, to a large extent, driving uh, investment in quantum computing, that... Quantum computing will be a computer revolution similar to the um, classical computer revolution, and that that essentially we should really view it as as an as as an analogous development to this development that started started then. Hmm. That I I don't really buy it, uh, but I think there's no possibility of comparison in the sense that uh, you know what computing meant in 1945 was mostly people uh, with sheets uh, writing out uh, calculations longhand. And uh, that's not what computing means anymore. And computing is, you know, so uh, deeply integrated into our entire society now that it can't possibly be as transformative as that, I, I would say. Yeah, I, I, I would also think that, I mean, also the kind of applications that are currently envisioned for quantum computing, like certainly the chemistry and, and, and so on applications, they are pretty solid. Uh, but they are far away. They are very difficult to... Yeah, they're also even still debated whether what nature of advantage one will get. You know, is there a, quote, exponential advantage, and what does that even mean? Uh, it does give a very different line of attack for yes. chemistry problems. I, I will agree with that. And, and then, I mean, then the other applications are, are even more difficult. I mean, of course, I'm not a computer expert, so I, I only read some of the papers... And the, the advantages in optimization problems and in, in, in machine learning and so on, mm -hmm. they are quite vague in a sense, right? Like it, it, could be, it could be that a quantum computer will really give uh, a transformational uh, advantage in some of these problems, but it's by no means guaranteed, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so just uh, 
commercial question again. Is it better to sell quantum computers or quantum computer access in a cloud? Uh, cloud seems like a good model to me, uh, given that quantum computers are big, delicate uh, pieces of hardware and probably will remain so for a while. Yeah. Also, you you have you protect your IP in a much more in a better if you don't you know hand it out to people. I guess. Mm, okay, but the IP of whom? Of the people who are of, uh, of the, the the like running applications. You don't want well. That's I guess the first thing is that you protect the uh, technology. Like if yeah. you don't give people access to your quantum computer, they can't reverse engineer it. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, and. Um, also, I guess there's ideas for blind quantum computing or blind computing more broadly, mm -hmm. which are not possible classically, right? Well, not possible in the same sense that, you know... Uh, impractical, impractical. Uh, no, they're actually fairly practical, just that their security rests on unproven mathematical propositions. While in the quantum case, it would be... It rests upon the laws of physics, it's just like we say in cryptography more broadly. So we have lots of successful cryptography uh, uh, you know, without using quantum cryptography. Indeed. So, but in, in that sense, I think the cloud business model is quite interesting. Even even like having a, uh, a quote unquote, uh, just quantum, um, uh, 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 just having quantum communication at that level mm -hmm. uh, uh, could already be an interesting application for, for blind computation on very sensitive uh, topics. Right? Mm -hmm. This is true, but I think the cloud paradigm is an excellent one for the here and now. I think the blind paradigm is for some far future. You know, we need to perfect many, many new things about quantum hardware for that to be viable. All right. Um, now, the the last questions are, are uh, a bit more, um, more personal. So did you have important mentors in your early career and that influenced you scientifically or, or personally or both? Well, yes, of course. Uh, I would say I had generally very positive experiences with my uh, mentors. That is that I have, you know, very positive things to say about every single one of them, starting with my, uh, well, my uh, master's advisor, Solra Brabi, who uh, knew a lot about solid state physics and was very generous with his time and taught me a lot of things. Uh, but I could name, you know, a string of 10 people who I think were really important for me to interact with and to learn from. All right. Yeah, that's I, I think I mean, I wanted to ask because it's it's uh, it's a yeah, I think it's a very important part of uh, now you're a professor yourself. So it's it's also an important part of, of academia that is in some sense uh, uh, something that you also learn in, in a way like a trade. Right. There's mm -hmm. a certain apprenticeship aspect to uh, becoming uh, a scientist. Yes, this is true. Uh, and also I came to being a professor quite late in life. So I still feel I'm uh, I'm still it's a bit of work in progress, actually, uh, for me. So can you can you name one thing that you particularly like about being a professor at a university? Um, yeah, that you can set your own path. I think that's very important that uh, compared with uh, working in a corporation, which I did for many years, um, there there's uh, uh, well, in both in both models, there's a definite need for teamwork that you have to group together to make plans and uh, uh, but uh, in the end as a professor you can decide you, you can find a path for yourself and uh, in a corporate team hmm, uh, those avenues are much narrower I wouldn't say they're absent or they weren't absent for me fortunately but they uh, are always very narrow or, or sometimes totally absent in uh, 
if you're not a professor. Yeah, so may, I mean, you already sort of anticipated. Can you also say say something that is that is a, a, a positive thing about working in a large uh, corporation like IBM? Uh, what what is what is what is a positive thing about that working environment? Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, as a transient thing, uh, working there can be the best thing uh, for a scientist. Uh, but and when I say transient, I mean conditions that can exist for even tens of years, so not so transient. Um, uh, but it seems that they they always come to an end in that uh, model. That is, that corporate forces eventually be, make it impossible to work in very exploratory ways. I, I look at you know what goes on now at uh, Amazon and Google, where they have comparable resources compared to IBM of 40 years ago. And uh, they can let people just sort of uh, uh, be very freely exploring. I think of Microsoft also. Um, and uh, I, I don't think it's, it's somewhat similar to the IBM model. And it's produced very nice things for quantum computing research as well. Um, but uh, I think runs out of steam at some point. Uh, whereas, you know, universities uh, live for centuries. Yes. So then, uh, exactly, last last question out of this. Uh, what do you like about being an institute director? Um, I have many extremely interesting colleagues at various levels, and just uh, seeing how they work and uh, interacting with them is uh, quite a privilege. Yep. So, okay, now let's uh, uh, step back and maybe talk a little bit about your about your career path. Um, and let's let's start. You you studied electrical engineering in, in, uh, at university, right? So um, you did a master's of electrical. I'll engineering. give you a slightly longer story. I've enrolled at university in uh, mechanical engineering. Wow! Yeah. And after a year, uh, but however, <clears throat> I was assigned an advisor, uh, overall advisor who was in electrical engineering, and he, uh, 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 I don't know, so in some sense, so took liking to me or something, or was really. Uh, 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 very good in mentoring. And by the end of that year, I was convinced that I should go into electrical engineering. Um, uh, and indeed, then <clears throat> my degree path remained in electrical engineering. However, my research path uh, after a few years was very much in a physics direction. And uh, things were very flexible and I could, you know, actually pursue uh, studies and even and the research and have a research advisor in physics, even though my uh, degrees Uh, were all in electrical engineering. So I had a very hybrid kind of um, education and also research path. That's, that's very interesting. I mean, I, I did all my education in Germany, so I, um, and well, uh, I never, I think the, the, the German system is in a way much more rigid, right? That, that we, um, uh, you, you basically, in, in, in America, you have this system where you have a, a minor and a major or something, right? So mm -hmm. you don't have to, your, your, your path is not as determined from, from the start. While in Germany, you go to university and you say, I will become a physicist. And then you start your physics education. Yeah, of course, if you were at the RWTH now, you would, and you moved, you were going into quantum science, you would have a bigger opportunity to get a little bit exposed to uh, things, you know, like from engineering, because we consider that important. Uh, in the quantum computing sciences, and so there's a bit of a mixed uh, curriculum now. Not at the bachelor level, though, but yes, no, but indeed at the master level now. Master level, definitely so. 
Yeah, and, and and I think that that that's something very important. I I was I studied around the two thousand like I finished in two thousand thirteen, uh, so so around that time there was not yet a, a program that was so clearly oriented towards uh, um, quantum information or quantum computing. No, indeed, and in general the buckets are very rigid. I mean the walls, the silos are are high and uh, solid between the different disciplines. Yeah, at least if you if you take the classes, I mean in Aachen. Indeed, I could take a class in classical cryptography, but I think I couldn't take it for credit in physics. But it was a very useful class, uh, uh-huh. nonetheless. Uh-huh. Um, so, um, I guess your your pathway to quantum mechanics was solid state physics, then. Yes, definitely. So, mm-hmm. uh, indeed, which which basically is, is things like uh, um, how how electrons behave in, let's say, semiconductors, metals, and and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that's, um, I mean, later on in your life, you have worked uh, uh, on, on qubits, which make things in a way a lot more neat and, and uh, how do you say, like... Uh, platonic. Platonic, yeah, uh-huh. exactly. A qubit is a qubit, while uh, electrons are, are different wherever, whatever material Can you be have. a mess, yeah. Yeah. So... Um, and for, you know in the lab uh, quite well how yeah, messy exa- they can be. Exactly. It's, it's, uh, and how, how, how was this transition for you? Um, uh, did you, did you, I mean, if you come from, from an electrical engineering background into the, um, into the quantum mechanics of electrons, first of all, how is, how is that tra- transition, um, how was that transition for you? Um, well, I was thinking uh, maybe I'll answer sort of a half phrase back because, yep. uh, you know, the transition to qubits for me, uh, was indeed connected with one of my, you might say mentors, uh, uh, you know, probably the tenth or so. Uh, that being Charles Bennett that, uh, at IBM, I was working on solid state and materials physics problems, um, uh, not completely conventional, but definitely within the sphere of physics. But uh, in Bennett, I saw a model of someone who was well educated in physics, knew condensed matter physics, knew statistical physics very well, but also saw roots out of it. You know, way, way, way out of it. You know, like there's. There's inside the box, there's outside the box, and then there's Bennett. Um, and, uh, you know, he at that time was working indeed on cryptography, quantum cryptography, and he had just finished work in teleportation, quantum teleportation. And I just found that very neat. And I saw that, and I also saw that new ways, uh, one could bring um, new ideas from solid state into that. He had brought one or two, but uh, there were definitely new, you know, vast many things to be done. Um, once those ideas were laid out, was was Charles Bennett the uh, uh, the scientist who named who coined the term quantum teleportation? Do you know? Uh, I I think the answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, because although you know, there's a six author paper that introduced it, but he was certainly the driver of that paper. I've, he, I have to say, I've sort of always thought that he did a lot of damage in communicating quantum. Yeah, it, it, uh, well, yes, it gives it a, it pretends, it gives you a feeling that it must be some science fiction thing. Yeah. Um, and I think it's puzzled journalists <coughs> for uh, mm-hmm. probably now 20 something years yeah. or more. He was uh, not the one who coined the word qubit, but he was very, uh, he, he, he helped it along very well. Um, and yeah. again, in those, exactly those years in the middle 90s, 
So you did your PhD with uh, Eugene Millie, right? That's true. And yes. how how did this PhD um, uh, set you up for 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 your later path? Is, was it an important juncture in in, in in moving you along, or did you already know um, sort of what direction you wanted to go when you when you started? Well, it was an important juncture in that it uh, you know further matured my knowledge of of uh, solid state and statistical physics. Um, and gave me an opportunity to get education from another great uh, mentor. Um, I, I don't think there have been that many threads from my work then to the present, uh, except uh, it was all about quantum mechanics at some level, uh, about uh, you know finding the right approximations to quantum mechanics and uh, understanding energy states. Uh, uh, you know our work. Uh, articulated in what sense uh, graphite uh, uh, had uh, Dirac electrons. So that uh, has been a pleasing thing that, you know, a little thing that a nugget that was in my PhD work that had definitely longer life, but it was not the eye who really uh, carried it forward. All right. And so do you still enjoy thinking about solid state physics in, in, and the many body problems there in terms of, 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 of this? Or do you, do you now prefer... Um, mapping the problems to, to, to qubits and, and looking at it from that angle? Uh, no, I'm enjoying solid-state physics uh, very much uh, currently. Um, I always, it's always something with reference to qubits, but not necessarily right, you know, uh, uh, intimately connected with the questions of qubits. And uh, around, your, around your PhD time, I mean, there was no notion of qubits, but for example, uh, uh, things like the Jordan-Wigner transformation already existed, right? Yeah, it was a known toolkit, a known thing among the vast toolkit in uh, many-body physics. Exactly, which is essentially something that explains how you can move a problem of electrons to a problem of Pauli matrices. Or in- uh, This is true, uh, but I, I'm... I definitely didn't have any great vision of, of that uh, when I was first uh, learning it. So you think people at the time thought about it differently than they would today? Hmm. Uh, yes, for sure. Although now, how how to characterize that difference? Um, I, I think that some of our you know great forebears uh, did not believe so much that quantum mechanics was something you could take apart so so readily. You know, like a, a box, you just, uh, you know, you want to get to the innards of it, you just rip the box apart like we do today, that they uh, treated it with more care. Um, now, what do I mean by that? I mean, they, I, you know, I think they got stuck on philosophy in some sense, you know, Bohr and interpretations and things like that, and were treading very carefully. Uh, um, and uh, I think in some cases it muddled their thinking or, or it made them less bold. Yeah. To say, okay, let's just, uh, um, you know, chuck interpretations, just say the wave function is it and uh, figure out what that means. Yeah. No, I, I think, uh, okay, I have an idea how we can how we can get back to that in a bit. Um, but let's maybe let's maybe move a little bit along in your in your history. And um, uh, so you, you did a brief postdoc, right? Uh, well, it was two years. Two year postdoc? At, uh, at Cornell, right. Mm-hmm. And... Um, more great mentors. More great mentors, and uh, uh, was that an like uh, uh, basically after your postdoc, you moved to IBM, right? That's right. And well, I could also say I was, I had a, a fellowship. Uh, my my graduate uh, res- graduate studies were financed by IBM, so I was already connected, and I'd spent a summer at IBM, so I was already quite on the track 
with IBM even uh, even uh, in my PhD time. So did you around this time uh, consider um, like so that the path was uh, uh, to go into this corporate research direction at mm -hmm. the time? Mm -hmm. So you didn't at the time consider a more uh, no, like a more uh, conventional academic uh, career? Uh, well, I could have. I, I had the chance to. I, I could have been an assistant professor at Illinois, in mm -hmm. fact. But I found uh, IBM more appealing, and not because it was a corporation, but because it was a great, uh, you know, temple of science. No, indeed. I, I think, okay, so the situation at IBM around the time that you joined, that was in uh, the mid-80s, right? 85, yeah, that's right. And uh, the situation was that... Uh, Charles Bennett and Landauer had worked on, on sort of foundations of computing, right? That's true. Already? I didn't know any of that at that ah, time. Okay, you didn't. No, no, I didn't know that. And uh, um, so, what, 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 uh, what do you to to IBM? So, if it wasn't oh, that, kind uh, of well, materials physics, I, uh, you know, solid state physics. That that's what uh, was really happening there. And how how did you connect with the with the more foundational computing uh, aspects? And uh, well, a lot of it was the pull of the amazing experimental physicist at IBM uh, at that time. Uh, you know, IBM had indeed been a pioneer of low temperature device uh, research. And within the year or two, I was, you know, fairly aware of that and uh, started, uh, you know, exploring what I could do in that direction. It didn't happen right away, but... Um, Uh, in that case, the pull of David Auschelom was very important. Uh, and he had a pretty crazy experiment that he was trying to do, which involved uh, uh, ferritins, which are nanoparticles uh, extracted from the spleens of horses. I hope your German uh, listeners can understand what those words are even. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they were known to be magnetic and they were very small. And he was trying to look for the quantum dynamics of those magnets. So and, early spintronics, sort of. Um, yes, very early. Uh, and uh, it was never clear that the experiments really saw quantum coherence, but they were striving to do so, you know, in the framework that uh, that Leggett had laid out at that time. Oh, yeah, right. Anthony Leggett was also a very important sort of influence in this early time of, of quantum coherence in... in uh, right. Well, he was the one that said, uh, let's believe in quantum coherence for... Anything that you can write a Schrodinger equation for, including an electric circuit. Yes. Um, I didn't get into that until much later, but that was indeed part of his uh, program at that time. Yeah, that's uh, so exactly. There's, there's this is completely parallel. To, so we, we um, with Avshalom, essentially we're talking about ideas that would you could see as predecessors to uh, later spin qubits, like uh, your famous proposal for for a spin uh, electron spin quantum computer. Yeah, well, more directly, this uh, sort well, of uh, molecular spin yeah. uh, devices. Uh, you think of our colleague uh, Wernstorfer at KIT. There's a really direct line uh, from the not very well controlled horse spleen ferritin experiments to actually molecular magnets. Yes. Um, so that's one thread of, of, of things that later would, would go to into like a predecessor of today's quantum computers. Mm -hmm. uh, another thread is the superconducting qubits. And interestingly enough, I mean, in some sense, the earliest work on superconducting qubits is also from the early 80s, I believe, right? The Den Denker-Yerke yeah. uh, uh, quantum network theory. Well, uh, I mean, well they that's didn't the sort of theory side. Uh, I don't know that they did any real experiments. Well, I shouldn't say it that way. Yerke certainly did. But the, I think the really productive experiments were the Berkeley experiments yes. in that time. Yeah. And then our 
staff at IBM had many Berkeley graduates, oh, okay. and that, that was definitely one you know, I mean, aspect. In, so in, in this time at IBM, there was a large effort at IBM to make a, um, a classical computer out of Josephson Junctions, right? That's true. That had just been ending when I joined IBM. Oh, all right. That had already been deemed uh, un, you know, not possible or not reasonable. Uh, a lot of it was because CMOS was zooming along so fast. Yeah, I, I think this is the... Um Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I want to get to this a little bit later, but that's, that's really, I mean, the success of the classical computer uh, and, and CMOS has in some ways killed many other computing uh, theories, right? Because it was just, it was just too good to, to, for, for those uh, burgeoning platforms like, uh, I don't know, photonic computing, Josephson Junction computing. They just never uh, became as practical. practical. Uh, that's true, yes. Uh, I mean, it was uh, the narrow, the corridors got very narrow and, you know, that in the sense that even in silicon research, um, you know, you shouldn't anymore work on bipolar junction physics because uh, that's, that's the style of computer or style of transistor we stopped using. That was a painful transition for IBM, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 how do you say the the success of CMOS technology has really been been something? I mean, also gallium arsenide certainly remained an important platform for niche applications, mm -hmm. but sort of never made it into this full... Um, yeah, it's also the sunsetting of germanium, which had happened a little bit earlier, that uh, I think in the 80s, uh, nobody in technology cared one bit about germanium anymore. It only came back a bit. Which, uh, even though the first transistor was made of Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit at a loss. I don't, my history is not so good, but it was made of germanium? No, the first transistor was made of some cat whisker or something. But uh, uh, the, the early commercial transistors were germanium. And it's true for 10 years or something. But then they were eclipsed by MOS and by silicon. So, so at IBM, you got into some experimental work as well? or Modeling experiment. Modeling yeah. experiment. Yeah, and indeed, right from the beginning, uh, actually a fairly big line of mine at that time were quasi-crystals, which has nothing to do with any of this. Um, wow. And there were nice experiments at IBM, and that I was working on right away in the first year. Um, and so so when, when, when in this whole time did you hear about quantum computing? Uh, in 1993. It was right. a very discreet event, in fact, that I had... Um, I'd been working, uh, okay, 1993 was an important year uh, in the sense it was a terrible year for IBM, and uh, it was uh, caused the big shrinkage of physics research at IBM. And uh, somewhat related is that I took that year, a non-scientific year that year, I was working as a staff assistant to an executive, and so I was only writing plans, you know, like plans for shrinking things. And many people left IBM at that exact moment. But I stuck on, and I, but I said, I want to do something really new. And I had been watching uh, Bennett and his friends do stuff. And, I, uh, and I, by then, I knew Landauer also, who was actually quite supportive of continuing exploratory research in the midst of you know, a lot of carnage, actually, at IBM. And uh, you know, one day, late in 1993, I went to Bennett and I said, tell me the papers, tell me about quantum computers and give me the papers that are, uh, that are, uh, you know, uh, tell the story of quantum computers. And he gave me a stack of papers that were maybe two centimeters thick. And that was it. That was the entire uh, research. That, that was the entire literature of that subject at the time. I read them all and I was really hooked. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess today, if you printed out one one day on the archive on, on quantum computing, you'd probably end up with, with, with more, uh, more of a stack of papers. Yeah, the dynamic is quite different now. Yeah. And <coughs> so you already mentioned uh, Landauer. I always was fascinated a little bit with Landauer because he wrote this paper about uh, truth and advertising in, in computing. Mm-hmm. Did, did you read this at the time? Oh, yes. I was aware of his thinking, whether I exactly read that paper. He, read, he wrote various similar papers along yeah. those lines. And essentially what he was arguing at the time was in, in that particular paper, he, he basically makes this argument that we already sort of uh, talked about in a sense that the alternative computing platforms have fared very badly, but nonetheless people have... Um, uh, been very uh, uh, um, yeah good at advertising them as uh, you know um, solving the problem that classical computers will will no longer meet or some like essentially saying the Moore's law is coming to an end or something and then that's why you need photonic computing quantum computing etc. Mm-hmm. He's making the argument that essentially none of these proposals have have panned out right right and, and he, he was very critical of quantum he was very computing critical as well of quantum but computing. critical in a real in, in the sense of a real scientist. That exactly. is, he was always open to discussion. He would have very sharp discussions, but very honest discussions about things and would, was willing to learn. I, I think, um, in, in fact, his, his criticism of quantum computing is fascinating if you read it today because he was he was talking about it in the sense that eventually something like many-body localization would, would um, kill a quantum computer. Uh, well, that's... Uh, uh, anachronistic in the sense that that phrase didn't even exist then. But he understood that there were many physics issues that uh, were swept under the rug when people would just uh, write a Hamiltonian, play with it a little bit, and say, aha, an interesting effect. Yeah. So um, um, I think he would have been, you know, he died a bit young, unfortunately, but uh, he would have been similarly very critical of uh, topological qubits. So one thing that I want to mention is at the moment, like exactly the year 1993, um, something is very interesting about uh, uh, this time in quantum computing because the the crucial missing ingredient to quantum computers in the year 1993, I th- think, is quantum error correction, right? True. So, well, also the absence of a, of an interesting algorithm. Indeed, yeah. But that so, got cured within a few months. Ex- exactly. So, so how did it? How, how did you get into? What was it that hooked you on quantum computing? If if there was no Exactly, the number of algorithms was still at maybe two or three at the yeah, time. Yeah, that's right. The Simon algorithm had come out at that moment. Um, uh, well, I was hooked because I understood that it was a new kind of physics problem. Uh, I mean, I was immediately thinking about the uh, the solid-state physics connection, although I didn't stay that way in the sense that I broadened my thinking and wrote papers in all sorts of directions uh, in those years, not really related to solid-state questions. Um, uh but I could see that there were, you know, existing ideas in quantum in um, in physics that could be brought to bear, and spins were one of them. Um, and I was starting to read papers about molecules and spins in molecules, and somewhere, somewhat, uh, you know, prompted also from the work that I'd done with Alshalom. Uh, but I, I saw, you know, a, a huge uh, a field for creativity uh, at that moment. Yeah, so maybe exactly just to probably this, I'm, I'm trying to um, phrase the right question. Um, so you have um, 
like in the stack of papers that Charles Bennett gave to you, was there also the, uh, I guess, the conference uh, uh, contribution from Feynman or, or not? Uh, probably, yes. But I never considered that one so important. Oh, but what was important, which I definitely read very probably in that stack, was Feynman's um, paper in... Uh, uh, a paper on what you would call adiabatic quantum computing. So that had real concrete computations in it that were worth following. So about how to find the ground state of a system. Yeah, so related to that, that's right. Um, although it was it was uh, only very partial, that is, he was only exploring how you could make a quantum evolution mimic digital computing. So he actually missed uh, the idea that, uh, you know, within the idea of gate operations that you could have quantum coherence. He, he actually missed that. Um, and the paper you're referring to, which is the one where he announced that there could be quantum computers, I don't know, is very dreamy. That is, it's just uh, kind of qualitative ideas, but yeah. nothing so concrete. Yeah, indeed. Um, so so I, I always find this 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 time in, in, in the history of quantum computing, it's, it's a fascinating time because... I mean, indeed. So, you, you, from the near year nineteen ninety three to the year nineteen ninety five, I would say that the field, like in the year nineteen ninety three, Landauer's criticism that quantum computing is a bit, you know, is is, is shaky at best, um, is true if you think about ideas of decoherence that were definitely there at the time. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then in nineteen ninety five, um, at the same time, you get the first really important algorithms, I guess, mostly with Shor's algorithm, but also I think Grover's algorithm came out yeah. uh, within, like, let's say a year of... of That's true, yeah. So you, in, in, in this time, you immediately get the most, like, get very important algorithms that show relevant speedups to mm -hmm. problems. And at the same time, this problem of decoherence, they, they, at least there's a strategy that's presented that solves it. Right, in quantum error correction. In quantum error correction. Yeah. And we started working on that in a sense right away. Yeah, um, exactly. You're you're very early, uh, 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 like you very early co-authored papers on all of these uh, mm -hmm. topics. Yeah, but it was because uh, uh, our group uh, was thinking about it immediately in terms of making teleportation more robust. Um, and uh, the question was, uh, you know, suppose you have only, uh, well, you have you need uh, uh, entangled pairs to do teleportation, but what if they're imperfect? What if they've been subject to noise? And uh, uh, so we were very alert. Uh, I mean, we had some of the building blocks of quantum error correction in that work. And so when uh, Shore announced the paradigm, we were immediately uh, able to convert uh, or see how we'd applied what we had been doing to the error correction question. And so this, um, I mean, indeed, in some sense, you can see that say that these quantum um, communication problems, like teleportation or so on, in mm -hmm. some sense they are also algorithmic in, in nature. Like you can write down a, a diagram of, of, you know, you have entanglement and you do something and then uh, maybe ideally you even get better entanglement or so on. Mm -hmm. But uh, when in this time did you um, shift more towards this idea of, of, of uh, quantum gates and... and uh, um, uh, uh, sort of thinking of it almost in this like musical uh, score sheet uh, picture. Um, it was in trying to make sense of Shor's result uh, because Shor's original paper um, did not really use the gate idea, although it had been basically introduced by Deutsch. 
Uh, I'd say in this stack of thin stack of papers, Deutsch's papers were the most important one. Uh, and <clears throat> but uh, um, uh, Peter Shore had not figured out how to do the quantum Fourier transform. Uh, he had a, a very non-gate-based way of saying that it, it was doable, but not in the sense that we would mean it uh, currently. And so uh, we did then at that moment work out, okay, what is actually the gateway of doing quantum Fourier transform? And uh, that uh, made it clear that these musical scores were kind of uh, useful. And then at a, a conference, we sort of, a bunch of us all got together and kind of threw together all the ideas that we had about uh, you know the important construction. Well, the important constructions that you would use uh, to uh, to do gate arrays, and that was one of the important earlier papers. So, anyway, for for me, this is already quite uh, uh, yeah uh, fascinating to to uh, be here to to like it's a privilege to be able to ask you all these questions because I've I've wondered about some of these developments because uh, if you read the if you just read the papers and if you get a more, I mean, I got a more modern introduction to all of this where yeah. a lot of the pieces were already in place. So it's, mm -hmm. it's fascinating yeah, well, I noticed to see we, We've only made together. it to 30 years ago. So yes, uh, we need to, we need we have, to speed up a little bit. We have ways to go or so, we do a second podcast. Uh. No, indeed. So <laughs> let's, uh, I mean, the reason I wanted to spend so much time on this was because uh, then later on, and one of the things that you're really famous for is that there were all these important developments and you sort of synthesized them into the DiVincenzo criteria. Mm -hmm. which, which are now known <coughs> as the DiVincenzo criteria. I guess you didn't call them that at the time. No. <laughs> um, so um, how, how, like, I guess you already saw this as a synthesis, uh, synthesis of, of previous work, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, it's not a revolutionary uh, insight into physics, I would say. Um, it came about for me because uh, at one of our early conferences, maybe in 1994, uh, we had the chance to hear fresh, you know, before it was even published, the ideas of Sirach and Zoller in uh, Ion Traps. And uh, I admired that because that was uh, beyond, well beyond my own thinking in how you would do solid state things in a fairly comprehensive way. Um, and I tried to say, well, what did what have they accomplished more abstractly you know what what are the good things about their proposal for doing an ion trap quantum computer that can be more broadly applied so that's where my writing out that list uh, really started from um and i also used it or i constructed it uh, i mean i was a few years kind of constructing it that is i would give talks about it and i had some conference papers about it um and I could see it as a vehicle for, frankly, critiquing approaches that were rising up and looking very popular. Um, and I mean, I shouldn't sort of knock things, but uh, the NMR concept of quantum computing was, I, I thought, flawed. Um, and writing these criteria would enable me to say, why is it flawed? What's the, what's the flaw in it? So the flaw in NMR is like, um, let's, let's quickly go over the DiVincenzo criteria. Maybe and then we can then we can say what what, what was what was flawed or what. Uh, so the, the the criteria is first to have a scalable physical system with well characterized qubits, and I guess in that sense the Sirac Sola proposal, for example, was great because you have these ions in a trap, and if you want more qubits, you put more ions in the trap. And yeah, well, we were frankly rather naive at that moment about what it meant to actually scale things. Yes, I would say, and that of course 
been bitten us for years in the spin qubit uh, well, world to convert to not from sort of pretend scalability to real scalability. Yeah, I mean, maybe a word that is sort of not in there that, of course, everybody today worries about is yield, right? Like, I mean, I mean, in, uh, there's different forms of scalability, meaning you could just write down uh, an idea on a, on a, on a uh, napkin, if you wish, and say, well, if, if I want more, I just make more of it. Okay. Or you can you can say I have a yield of ninety nine percent or. Well, I don't know. I think if we are, if we're talking about getting to that stage, we've already won the battle, in my opinion. That is, if it's merely a matter of getting the factory to yield ninety nine percent and not sixty percent, uh, okay, that's really just engineering. Yeah, I would say. I mean, the other questions are how do you get all the wires in, or how do you? Yes, what's the what is the physical layout? Yeah, uh, you know, can you? Will you violate some laws of, of uh, construction by trying to jam too many wires into one place? Then you have the ability to initialize a state to, you give the example of a fiducial state like zero, 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 like putting all the qubits in zero, mm -hmm. so you have a, a good starting state. Yeah, that was my NMR slayer, mostly. Mostly, yes, indeed, because NMR, you have a, a lot of sort of quantum computers running in parallel. Mm -hmm. And they will all not be perfectly initialized, right? That's sort of the well, idea. even worse than that. That uh, you have to understand at that time the concept was to do room temperature experiments. Uh, I mean, it was a brilliant idea in the sense that you could just go to a standard setup that was in every chemistry department uh, and just you know make a test tube of something, put it in there, and you could be running a quantum computer. But of course, the uh, states of the nuclear spins were not pure states; uh, they were almost infinite temperature thermal states and it's clever that you could do you might say NISC things with that but uh, uh, with a really fundamentally limited number of qubits. Although to be honest I mean this initial implementation of Shor's algorithm on an NMR platform was probably a really really important uh, uh, point of bringing the field together and of, of creating excitement right? I, I guess so yes I mean it was never that important for me But I think that it's true that it uh, it established that you know you could really do something of that complexity. Yeah. Uh, you know the the pulse scheduling was some quite impressive piece of work there. Yeah, and the, I mean it took I guess it took ion traps another like this was around the 2000s I guess. Right. And right. it took ion traps I think another few years to get there. Right. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's true. Um, then, okay, the third uh, criteria was the long relevant decoherence times, uh, much longer than the gate operation time. As an experimentalist, one thing that I always found curious is like, I mean, the idea of decoherence is there, but mm -hmm. decoherence is one sort of source of errors, right? Right, but and not the only. Not the only one. As, so we, as we know and if, we knew. If you would re rewrite it now, would you... Um, would you uh, uh, maybe say say something just simply about gate fidelity or... Oh, um, no, I like the uh, less definite way of writing it there. Uh, it was definitely written with uh, error correction concepts in mind. Exactly. Like, I mean, this idea of, of a threshold. Yeah, but it's certainly better that I didn't quote the, the currently understood threshold in, yeah. that, in that time because that was like 10 to the minus 6 or something. Exactly. And, or, you know, in other words, fidelity of, of uh, six nines or something. Yeah. And fortunately, that hasn't turned out to be the final story from theory. No, indeed. I think I think one one thing that really, uh, like uh, from the theory side, it's really important that the uh, um, benchmarks that a quantum computer has to reach have, have sort of been improved by a factor of a thousand or something. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, the six nines and fidelity we maybe only reach in ion traps right now, and 
even there it's uh well for one single qubit one qubit gates, single qubit gates yeah yes. maybe yes and for two qubit gates we're quite a bit away from it yeah mm-hmm. and then you have the universal set of quantum gates which also i think is a at the time that you wrote the list of criteria was a relatively recent uh mathematical proof that oh not well yeah but it was uh, no it was in a sense established the concept was established by deutsch in what year in 89 or something so it, uh now there had been improvements on ideas of well what are what's really a sort of uh conveniently conveniently usable set of quantum gates the strong focus on the C phase and the C naught was pretty recent, but had been established yeah. uh, by then. And then the the qubit pr- uh, specific measurement capability, of course. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you have the bonus uh, criteria of of sort of uh, bringing in quantum um, communication by uh, uh, sort of coupling essentially to photons, right? To, to yeah, have flying. Qubits. But that was indeed a kind of afterthought. And in you know the way I wrote it, I was explicit about that. That you know the first five are what you need to make a quantum computer. Uh, but to do more, you you should communicate as well. To to what extent were you aware when you wrote this paper that uh, of the impact it would have? Um, didn't expect it. Uh, but one uh, inkling that it would have an impact was that it was taken up quite quickly by uh, program uh, officers in the United States uh, as... Uh, you know, a, a way of describing what should be done, you know, that of uh, metricizing, is that a word, you know, of, of uh, first efforts to build metrics yeah. for progress. And they could see these as a way to hit people over the head uh, and, you know, critique their progress. So that's the first time I heard it as uh, sort of reflected back to me was at some meeting of, you know, in the United States funding uh, setting. This was like DARPA or... Uh, well, one of the predecessors, well, it was IARPA, but a, actually a predecessor to IARPA. Ah, all right. Which was called ARDA. Ah, yes, indeed. And the, the, those were the, uh, essentially they needed a, um, they, they needed to organize these programs and, 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 and have clear milestones, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, and right. the mm-hmm. uh, De Vincenzo criteria became those milestones. On the other hand, I think there are pros in the field who don't, and don't have to at all make reference to those criteria. They say, we know what we're doing. Uh, and, uh, you know, there definitely are, uh, are, are colleagues from whom I've never heard the G. Vincenzo criteria, and I, I don't think they need them necessarily. Yeah, exactly. Like, do you think they, how, how universal do you think the criteria are? Or do you think that there's uh, a quantum, uh, that there will be useful quantum machines that challenge the criteria? Oh, not really, uh, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, yes, indeed, you could say, well, does this fit? Uh, if you if adiabatic computing works, uh, then these don't fit really. This is, of course, really adapted to uh, gate-based concepts. Um, but, you know, what about like uh, linear optics quantum computing? Yeah, okay. They say, well, at, at the right abstract level, it's it all fits. Um, and I, I think they'll always fit, is my view. Um, but they become, you know, they're, they're a teaching tool also, right? That uh, you, uh, if you you have your first course in quantum computing, well, here's uh, something to throw at the students and then they have to uh, tell it back to you on some exam. Yeah, no, indeed. It's a good blueprint. And then exactly the, the other thing that happens in the 90s, so you, you, you made the theoretical blueprint for a quantum computer. But then the other thing is that especially like you have the CIRAC solar proposal, which is early 90s. 
But then towards the end of the 90s, you have a, a, an explosion in, in, in proposals of how to build quantum computers, mm-hmm. right? Well, a small explosion. A small right explosion. Thing. And um, just just to mention a few, you have, uh, uh, and we will talk about this a bit, the, the Lost DiVincenzo quantum computer. You have the Kane quantum computer. Uh, the early ideas for topological quantum computing. Um, okay, but they, uh, well, I don't think that rose to a really physical proposal. Yeah, yeah they indeed. Were the, really, the early they topological were really just theory. They, they're just Pauli matrices, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, of course, superconducting qubits uh, and uh, photonic quantum computing, most notably. Okay, yeah, I true. That's true. Um, how, right, a stock of, stack of papers 10 centimeters high yeah, would exactly. cover Not, all of those. Exactly. And uh, um, when... when uh, so the, the the quantum computer you envisioned at the time is indeed sort of a solid state um, electron spin quantum computer, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And um, in some sense, I think one of the strengths of this lost DiVincenzo quantum computer is that it's kind of close to um, classical computers. Did you see this as a as an important strength at the time? Not especially, but I saw it as. Uh uh, but in applied physics research, it was important. I mean, so I guess there's a chain somehow from, uh, from uh, you know, chip-based technologies to the fact that you have heterostructures to the fact that you can, uh, uh, you know, put make gated structures in heterostructures. And uh, but I, I was uh, or we was were really inspired by the, the current trends in experimental research in low temperature. A research and starting to see Coulomb blockade, and there, there was a specific experiment in the lab of Westerfeld uh, at Harvard, where they had made two dots and had uh, you know filled them up separately and could see that they interacted with each other, and that that was about it. I mean, it wasn't single electrons, but you could see Coulomb blockade in such settings. So let's let's try to to um, to describe um, the idea. Um, so the scalable physical system of well-characterized qubits becomes uh, quantum dots that are filled with uh, electrons. Yeah, and electron spin. And electro- Exactly. The electrons are predominantly the carriers of spin, mm-hmm. but you can use the charge of the electrons to manipulate them. Right. Um, the strength and the weakness of that, <laughs> of that approach, indeed. At the time, the extent of charge of, of, of noise in, in, in the charge, was it already known or did you not worry about it as uh, much? Yes, it was known. I mean, you knew from mesoscopic experiments, which were mostly sort of charge-based, you knew a lot about uh, decoherence in the charge sector, and it was fairly bad. Yeah. Uh, and I think there were maybe even experiments that were relatively close to charge qubits where you knew it was bad. Yeah. at that time. But it was also known that spins could be fairly coherent, although maybe not in this larger solid-state setting, because the... Uh, true, true. Um, right, it was a bit of a new kind of single spin, yes. uh, that we had many impurity center single spin kind of things in ensemble experiments in electron spin resonance. There was also the nuclear spin. Yes. Um, so the strength of your proposal was that it essentially outlined, uh, let's say, if you have... Um, if you have a sort of a two-dimensional uh, a sea of electrons and you can put some metal on top and put it in the right order, mm-hmm. you gave instructions for how you can turn this into a quantum computer. Yeah. That's well, it was indeed following the criteria in some sense. Yeah. You, know, you have a qubit. Okay. What is it? Why should it be uh, long-lived? 
and uh, what kind of gates should you do on it and how do you measure it. We, we had some pretty weird ideas for measuring it actually in that paper. Yes. And not all of which have really come back, have ever come back. Yeah, that's true. I, I think like later on, I mean, now, um, indeed, the, the, the current quantum computers uh, based on spin qubits are certainly um, still following some of the aspects of your proposal, mm-hmm. but have, have deviated in, in many ways. Like there's, there's different ways of measuring the spin qubits. Um, one really interesting question that is maybe not solved is um, what is the best control mechanism? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You, you, at the right. time you gave exchange interaction, meaning um, uh, uh, to control how much the electrons tunnel. Yeah, controlled overlap of the single particle wave of functions. Single particle yeah. wave functions. <clears throat> and, um, well, there's, I guess there's really... <laughs> I think that's still very relevant. I think it's still a very those, relevant technique um, indeed. But there's now been micromagnets and uh, right. spin-orbit interaction uh, and so on. So there's mm-hmm. been a lot of mm-hmm. uh, sort of uh, variation. And... Um, would you say that building the spin qubit quantum computer is easier or harder than you thought at the time? Hmm. Oh, good question. I th- uh, well, I had not thought through the unworkability of the of the uh, using only the exchange coupling as an architecture. That it had not really dawned on me that. Uh, well, first of all, you shouldn't just think linear chains. Maybe that I knew already. But thinking through the fact that there was no workable geometry to gate uh, a, an array of quantum dots uh, uh, had not definitely occurred to me. And so I think um, uh, in that respect, I was, uh, well, it was disappointing. Yeah. And just on, on uh, uh, continuing on, on, on that question, maybe uh, like... Today, I think one of the big problems in quantum dots is disorder in the heterostructures, right? Mm, yes. Was this something that at the time you already anticipated or was it something that was discovered as people try to uh, implement this? Mm, I don't think we didn't treat, we didn't do too much about that in our original work. I mean, of course, I did many follow-ups and we did uh, think about that subsequently. I, I think the big mystery remains the one that uh, your first advisor w- was very focused on and still strives towards, which is long-distance coupling. Yes. Yeah, indeed. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I indeed, in my master's, I worked on, on, on uh, electron uh, uh, spin uh, qubits with Hendrik Bloom. And it, indeed, it's, it's a fascinating platform still, and it's not yet clear how, how it will look as a final quantum computer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, maybe maybe the other thing that I still wanted to ask, we we have to s- sadly come to a close uh, soon. Right. But um, I, I wanted to ask, uh, at the time, I guess, gallium arsenide heterostructures were the most promising. Uh, true, yes. But and I think we didn't actually say gallium arsenide in our paper, yeah. but that was definitely what we were thinking. Yeah. Um, by now, like, because one of the things that, that has made gallium arsenide... Um, Somewhat unworkable were the nuclear spin environments. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I read a little bit through your paper, but there's not so much talk about this. We were quite naive about it at first, yeah. uh, but that uh, well came up uh, quite a lot afterwards, of course. And, uh, and now, indeed, the, the the critical point where the silicon and silicon germanium uh, 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 quantum computers are are better mm-hmm. are are these nuclear spin environments, right? Right. Right. Definitely. Maybe one 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 last thing on the on the lost Di Vincenzo quantum computer. 
like one company that has sort of um, different companies have taken on different quantum computing platforms. But the company that has sort of taken on the uh, quantum dots is Intel, right? Mm. To some extent. Somewhat, yeah. Somewhat. But not uh, not deeply, I not, think. Not, not as deeply as mm -hmm. they could. Do you think that... Um, I mean, if you point to an organization, HRL is certainly the one that's uh, oh, yeah, yeah, deeply committed to quantum, to quantum dots. dots. Um, that's not a company. But do you think that uh, um, the mastery of the semiconductors... Uh, at the level that that uh, uh, companies like Intel have mastered them is ultimately an asset, or is it still that somehow the the, the application of quantum computing is quite a bit more specialized? Than yeah, that? I think it's an asset, but I think it's not uh, by itself enough. Yeah, you have to know uh, a lot of other physics about semiconductors. Yeah, that are not much on the plate of a of a technology company uh, yeah. like Intel. There's important differences in making quantum dots and making making transistors, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's something that... Well, and the low temperature physics of semiconductors is indeed a whole different world from the world of you know conventional CMOS yes. operation and optimization. And the thing that you already said, in the end, a linear array cannot be enough. And so one, one of the assets of the quantum dots, they are very small. But mm -hmm. as you said, the long distance uh, connections are quite difficult. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems is they're essentially too small to have them all exchange coupled. Right. And uh, well, I mean, the, the, one of the big competing solid state technologies, the superconducting qubits, are enormous in comparison. Yeah, but that's never been any big concern of mine. I mean, I think the quantum computer shouldn't be the size of a stadium, which has, I mean, there is uh, serious work at Sussex, which uh, shows the final quantum computer of that size. So it's better if it's not that size. But we also know that uh, it's not necessary to make a quantum computer with 10 billion, uh, uh, you know, working elements, transistors on a chip of a few centimeters. Uh, Indeed. Uh, we will have uh, interesting quantum computing Uh, at the only millions level, yeah, and uh, doesn't have to fit in your in your phone. No, indeed. I mean, we can we can buy a thirty centimeter wafer, mm -hmm. and uh, you can put even even of the current superconducting qubit size, you can put uh, if not millions, but thousands of them easily on a big yeah. wafer. So I've you know I've asked a technologist whether we should someday explore trench capacitors for. Transmons. Now, this is very technical, yeah. but you know what I'm talking yeah, about. And they said, well, yeah, maybe. But I think that'd be a great research project, actually. The noise would be horrible. So that, you yeah, know, the, exactly. I mean, this is always the problem. In, in some sense, the, the, the great success of, of superconducting qubits for a while has been to make them very big. Yeah. And uh, uh, while uh, the, the problem of spin qubits at the moment is that they are so small and even um, uh, microscopic disorder on, on sort of an atomic level Has, has been has been a, a huge problem. So right. the question is essentially translates back to this uh, original Feynman paper where he says if you can engineer matter at an atomic level, mm -hmm. of course it'll be great. Yeah, but, but we try to avoid that at all costs. Indeed, uh, and probably we are still at least 10, 20 years away from that perfection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't want to name any numbers, but uh, I'm sure this this story will not be finished uh, before I am. <laughs> yes, I, I think we we have to come to a close here, which is a bit sad. But I, I think it was very good to um, to to talk about the basics and um, to uh, really discuss uh, first the idea of how quantum computing came along, and and then also how it how it blossomed into a concrete proposal for a quantum computer. 
And I think in, in some sense, while your proposal has de developed a lot, uh, the basic ideas still stand and it's still one of the strong contenders for, uh, for building a quantum computer. Thank you a lot for, for sitting down and having this talk. I um, did ask you a lot about the past here and I hope maybe we can do a, a follow up about the future at some point. But I thought that you are uh, uh, one of the few people who have been around in this, in this critical time of quantum computing where it was not yet clear how things would turn out. And I think for listeners like me who came to the field at the moment where it was all laid out uh, and, and, and pretty clear, It's, it's very important to hear uh, uh, about this time, uh, basically in the, in the um, mid, to, mid to late 90s. Yeah, so. I think it was a once in a lifetime thing for me and uh, something that uh, is very special. It yes. doesn't come to all of us. Mm. So thanks a lot for, for, for giving some thoughts on this time. And uh, yeah, thanks for, for being, being the guest here. Okay, thank you, Christian.